Welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly leadership podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week. I have the distinct honor of being associated with Franklin Covey, which is the world's most trusted leadership development firm for six years and nearly 400 episodes taped in this podcast studio where we release two episodes weekly on Tuesdays and Fridays, both in audio and video. We shine what is Franklin Covey's megawatt leadership spotlight onto thought leaders from every walk of life. And today, I'm honored to have the renowned thought leader, Herminia Ibarra. She is here from her home in London. Her newest book is Working Identity, Unconventional Strategies for Reinventing Your Career. This is going to be a very practical session for everyone who's in any phase of their career. I I don't care if you're a first-time frontline leader, perhaps you're a mid- or senior-level contributor, maybe you are an independent producer or you're in the C-suite, she is going to challenge the way you think about your identity professionally and give you some practical concepts around how to pivot in your career if, in fact, that's right for you. Herminia, welcome to On Leadership. Hello, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. Honored to spotlight you and your work today. Before we do this, however, I'm a little jealous of your background because rarely do we have a guest that actually is a more prolific collector of books and reader of books than I am, but you actually have done something quite remarkable off camera. I asked you if you would pan up and it kept going and going and going. Would you uh, indulge my invitation just to take your camera screen and kind of pan up and maybe narrate what it is we're seeing? Okay, we'll do, we'll do. All right, hang tight, hang tight. Here we go. It does go on for quite a bit. Let's see. Here we go, here we go. Here. I mean, those, are, those are the lights from the heavens, I feel like. This is a remarkable yes. uh, bookcase. Tell us a little about your love of reading and, um, and, and gifting books to people. Yeah, so I'm a reader, as you can see, and uh, I'm an active reader. I'm always pulling things out, uh, reminding myself of something, or, you know, a lot of these books, I use them in my day-to-day, in my teaching, in my research, but I also pull books out, suggest them to someone, give one away. Uh, And what happens all the time with all that churn is they end up getting all mixed up, Uh, books for fun, books for work. Uh, fiction, nonfiction, all of that kind of gets mixed up together a bit. So, so there you have it. But I, I can find things in here. Well, it's it's, it's visually remarkable. Uh, Herminia, reorient our listeners and viewers to your journey because in the leadership space, you are well known author, thought leader, coach, educator, uh, published author, consultant. But I would love to have people have a broader sense for what your professional journey has been and some of your current appointments and what you're working on right now before we get into your book, Working Identity. Sure, with pleasure. So I am a career academic, and I have to tell you this is an interesting factoid given how much I study career change, being a person who not only has never done so, but probably never will. (laughs) So I, I did a PhD in organizational behavior, Scott, And my first job as a professor was at Harvard Business School. I joined the faculty in 1989, so that's some time ago. And I've always taught on leadership uh, from the very beginning. My research, and you'll hear about it when we talk about working identity, in my early days, I studied networks, social networks, friendship networks, advised networks, how they affect people and how they affect innovation processes in organizations. 
And that really led me to, to, to two different um, areas that, that kind of interrelate, but really are in everything that I do. One is about stepping up to bigger leadership roles and networks play a huge part in that. As we evolve in our careers, as we move up to have greater impact. The other vein is about how we move out, how we change careers, how we move into very different kinds of occupations and roles. And networks play a huge role in that too, but not only. So over time, um, I have focused in these two areas. I've also had a look at what might be some of the unique barriers or challenges that women face in stepping up to more senior roles. But those are the two, two baskets, um, becoming a better leader, and advancing one's career in that direction or reinventing myself. As it turns out, and as we speak, both of those areas have a lot to do with our sense of personal identity, how we define ourselves to ourselves and to the people around us. Um, Mid-career, my big change was I, I, I left the Harvard Business School and I went to INSEAD Business School in France, where I stayed for 15 years. Also as a professor, teaching and researching on some of the same subjects. And most recently, I have joined the London Business School, uh, where I also um, I also pursue uh, these topics, and where I'm also a governor of the school. I mean, where do you go when you leave the Harvard Business School? You go to Inset, and then you go to the London Business School. So, what a phenomenal academic career! You've written several books, including a recent book, The Blue Book, behind you on leadership. I invited you today because I really wanted to have your different point of view your interesting point of view on career development, because I don't care what level you are in your career, including executive level leadership that may be thinking about, is this where I want to be? Is this what's bringing me passion? Is this what's unleashing my talents? Often, what we're great at isn't what brings us joy. I know a lot of people who are accountants or who are CFOs who are there because they were just good at math but it may not be what, they're, what brings them joy or calling. So we'll talk about today this concept of your work identity. You referenced it briefly in your opening. Will you dive a little bit deeper into what is someone's work identity? Why does it matter? And then I'm going to ask you to talk about yeah. how we uncover it. Okay. And notice that there's a little bit of a play in the title working identity. It is who you are at work in terms of your work which is an important way in which we define ourselves, but it's also working your identity as a verb form, working it as a draft, as a work in progress. It's both of those things. Now, to your question about who we are at work, it's a mix. It's a mix of what we do, what we think our skills are, the people we spend time with, uh, the company we keep, and also the story that we tell about who we wanted to be and how we became that. Herminia, I had the privilege of interviewing Stedman Graham, a fairly famous American entrepreneur, uh, uh, investor in, in, in urban leadership for youth. Many know him as Oprah Winfrey's life partner, a very accomplished man on his own. He wrote a series of books about identities and identity leadership. And he said something, I've known Stebbin for nearly 30 years. He said something that I think was profound. He said, you know, most of us are living an identity that somebody else chose for us. Our parents, our caregivers, yeah. someone in our family. And I think that translates not just personally, but into our professional lives. Talk about the extent to how people should be aware of if they are living a professional identity that perhaps someone else consciously, subconsciously led or lured them into. And what are some of the ways in which you can maybe unwind from that if it's not working for you? 
Yeah. And you know, that is most of us. That is most of us. Earlier in our careers, you know, we make our way into a world of categories that are established. What's a good thing to do? I'll be a doctor, I'll be a lawyer, or I'll be a business person. And, and it, it, sometimes it's even, you might be pulled in that direction without necessarily understanding, you know, the family dynamics that led you there or the kind of the, the, the group reinforcement that you get from being part of it. And what happens over time is you come to realize that, in fact, perhaps it hasn't, wasn't been entirely your own choice, more of what, what I call an ought self, uh, something imposed on you, the whole uh, task really of mid-career reinvention is becoming your own person, being able to ask yourself, who do I really want to be in a way that matches up to my interests, my talents, and also things that are wanted out there in the world. You and I share a lot of interests, um, one of which, of course, is leadership. The other is career development. I have shared this story, but I'm going to reshare it and I'd like to have you maybe expand on it. Um, I was born in an upper white middle-class family in the 70s in central Florida. My father was a full-time provider. My mother was a full-time homemaker and parent to my brother and I. My dad's dad died when he was 10 of cancer. And my dad's twin brother caught polio in junior high school and spent a decade in an iron lung and also died. And as a result, my father's mother was in mourning, and for a variety of reasons, he didn't really have parents. My mother was the daughter of two violent alcoholics who did not do a good job of parenting. In fact, she generally parented herself. When they met, their number one value became stability in our family. There was not a lot of joy or happiness. There wasn't a lot of fun or excitement, but there was a lot of stability. We had everything we needed and not much of what we wanted. I think as a result of their drama, their trauma, they became very fixated on stability with my brother and I. What is the badge? You mentioned the badge, right? Doctor, lawyer, anesthesiologist. And my brother very dutifully went to MIT and, and achieved a, a chemical engineering degree, a master's, a master's of business science, and my parents were quite proud of him. Then along comes his younger brother, me, and, you know, I work on political campaigns, and I get a job at the Walt Disney Company, and I sell real estate, and then I move into project management and sales and leadership. Then I host a podcast, and I'm a CMO, and I host a radio program, and I write books and give keynotes. And to this day, my mother, who is still alive, can't tell you how I earn a living because she can't relate to it. I think as a result, I was always, by far, <laughs> the lesser approved child. I think this is a lot of people's journeys. Their parents valued something and they felt forced into it. And I want to kind of give voice to both of those, to the parents who were doing their best with what they knew, but to this generation of people that found themselves lured into a career that became uh, not a labor of love, but kind of a burden. Maybe you could take a moment or two and disagree with me or agree doesn't matter, because I think a lot of people when they hear no. those stories can relate. There is so much truth to that, and so many, so many of the people that I have interviewed have told me about reaching a moment in their lives. Um, you know, often it's due to a traumatic event um, that makes them step back and say, "Are my choices mine? And is it not time now to make my choices mine, given you know the time that's left, <laughs> or to give the time that I need to build something new?" That's not necessarily to say that we reject some of those values that were imposed upon us. You know, I can relate to your story. I um, 
we were immigrants from Cuba. Uh, we immigrated to Florida, actually, as when I was seven years old. And for my parents, the key value was education, education. You arrive penniless. You know, it's the immigrant dream. What do you do? You overeducate yourself. So what did I do? study as much as I could, get as many degrees as I could. And lo and behold, I'm still in school. I remember I had an aunt that used to say, oh, she's still in school. You know, I'm 50 years old and I'm still in school. So, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. We are able to craft our jobs and our choices according to kind of a complex mix of values. And, and, Part of this is a process of becoming aware of those things. Now, I'll tell you this, and we can talk more about it. That awareness of all those influences in your choices doesn't come immediately. Sometimes it comes later in a process in which by trial and error and by exploring a little bit more broadly, you start to see what are those things, um, actually deep forces that are really shaping uh, what you see as your choices and what you see as possible and feasible and attractive. Beautifully said. Let's dive into the book because you've got a series of unconventional strategies that I'm going to choose to highlight because they're such, uh, such, so relevant to us. The first one you quote, act your way into a new way of thinking and being. You cannot discover yourself by introspection. Now, first blush, this kind of goes against conventional wisdom of know thyself, study thyself, you know, understanding why you are the way you are, but you very boldly say, act your way into a new way of thinking and being. Riff on that. Yeah. So know yourself, I will not disagree with. I, I think this is vital. The question is, how do you come to know yourself? And you know, you can't know yourself in isolation. You can't know yourself sitting in a room inside your brain. The way we come to learn ourselves is by putting something out into the world, doing something or reacting to something and seeing what happens and seeing if that confirms, you know, are you being tested? Are you being challenged uh, to show who you really are, your metal? We often have these theoretical notions of who we are, what we value. Most of the time they clash with how we spend our time and even the decisions that we make on the spot. And so it's the same with career. We have these ideas, you know, all the time I interview people who have these dreams. Um, you know, I want to be an author. I want to be, um, you know, one person who wanted to run a scuba diving shop. They try it and they realize this is not it. This is a fantasy. This is not how I want to spend my life day in and day out. And so by trying things, we get to see what is the match between fantasy and reality? Do I, would I thrive here where I continue to be challenged? Uh, will I feel fulfilled? Do I like the people who are in this setting? Are the organizations, organizations that fit my values? There's so many elements of what makes for a good fit that you don't discover until you have explored it a little bit more deeply. And that means actually not in your head. Herminia, a mutual friend of ours, Whitney Johnson, will say that you know the average career span for someone is now increasingly on the lower end, 18 months, and on the far end, 36 months. I think the average career in a Fortune 500 company is now five years. And there's lots of insights to take from that. A lot of career change going on around the world. You share in your book this concept that I really found contemplative. You write, career change is not an event. It is a transition process that takes time and is built from small changes. We've all just come off of the pandemic where we talked about, you know, people were moving, 
you know, sometimes multiple times a year for a variety of reasons. They were running to something, they were running from something, they were making 10 more thousand dollars or two more dollars an hour. And I think the pendulum swung really far one way and it's kind of swinging back the other way now. Reinforce for everyone who's thinking about a career change, talk to them about this concept that it really is a process and not just a snap event. For some, perhaps it is, but maybe describe what some of the components of a contemplative judicial career change looks like. Okay. I want to make a point of clarification, and that is um, the difference between a job and a career. You know, jobs last less and less. Think of jobs as the Lego blocks and then careers as the structures that you make with them. Um, and so you could have a series of different jobs and maybe a series of different jobs in different companies or even different industries. And they're still the same career, career as an accountant or career as a lawyer. And, and it hangs together for you. Um, career change is when you are shifting, you know, from uh, Legos to Playmobiles or, or, or something else. Um, you're within a different structure, a different sequence, and the leap um, has to be explained. It doesn't necessarily make sense. It has to be explained to the people who might hire you or who might finance you, to the people who love you and think you might be doing something stupid, to yourself. It needs a little bit of explanation. Now, the aspects of that change, the career change is the, the outcome. It's like, okay, now I'm in this job at the London Business School. The process is the process of moving away from something while moving towards something which is often not yet fully defined. And that's, that's the part that's hard and that we need to understand a little bit better so that we don't get impatient with ourselves as we go through it so that we don't jump the gun and then kind of go for something that's not really what we want because we're so fed up with the process. Well, I think that's an important point to reiterate, which is I see a lot of impulsivity in people's careers. Like you, I've authored a book about how to build an intentional career because I see so much sort of episodic, accidental, well, I'm gonna, my boss is a jerk, so I'm quitting the organization or I'm moving industries. And there's a time and a place to do that, no matter um, for sure. But I think what you're really reinforcing is there's a time for it to be an event, and there's also more likely the time for it to be a process more contemplative and try some different things to make sure that you recognize, you know, your career is, in many cases, your identity, not for all of us, but for some of us, and it recognizes that for most of us, we'll spend more time with people we work with than we will awake with our family and our well, friends. Well, that's, that's why it's such an important part of our identity, because it is what occupies our waking hours, and it is it determines the people that we're with who are the mirror to our identity. You can't have an identity by yourself. It's, it's also what's reflected back to you. But your word intentional is really important here. You know, this, this thing about impulsivity, I do see lots of people who are very unhappy about what they're doing, but they don't know where to start. They know what they don't like. They don't know what they want to do instead. And so they wait for something to come to them. Sometimes nothing comes and they get stuck and frustrated. But oftentimes things do come to them and they're the wrong things. But you jump hoping that the change of context will take care of the malaise that you're feeling. Uh, but in fact, you haven't really given thought or, or experimented with possibilities enough to know what it is that you're really looking for. 
Another unconventional wisdom you share strategy is the following. Stop trying to find your one true self. Focus your attention on which of your many possible selves you want to test and learn more about. Honestly, it's a concept that I don't think I'd ever been exposed to before. It makes sense intuitively, but I thought it was profound. I'm going to actually read it again, let it, let it kind of sink into all of our listeners. Stop trying to find your one true self. Focus your attention on which of your many possible selves you want to test and learn more about. Expand on that. All right. So there is no true self. There, oh, there's no little thing kind of deep inside you for you to excavate. There's a lot of possibilities for work that you will find fulfilling and meaningful. There's many manifestations that could be possible. And so what I tend to focus on is this idea of possible selves, which I have borrowed from a psychologist named Hazel Marcus at Stanford. And, and what she has said based on research is that our identity is not just who we've been, our past formative events, or who we are today, you know, the things we do, mother, wife, professor. It's also our fantasies and hopes and fears and wishes for who we might become in the future. And in fact, there's quite a cast of characters. And we do well to pay attention to them because they motivate us. And they guide our attention to what to explore and who to meet and what to look for. Um, one of the most interesting things I do with my students is instead of asking them, write to me who you want to be in five years' time or write me your obituary, what are people going to say about you? I say, write me a list of at least 10 and hopefully more possible selves for your future. Be divergent. Don't try to be consistent. Put them down even if they are high in the sky, even if they're just pure fantasies. Put down stuff that is not thought through, that's half-baked. Put down the things that you also you don't want to be that other people think you ought to be. Put down your feared possible selves, that person who you think you fear you might become if you don't leave this job or if you don't do this and this. Write them down, discuss. What happens is magical because people see that we're not unitary that we have a lot of facets. It just so happens that we've given more time to some of those facets. Others are unexplored and it's okay. And even things on that list that you'll never do are informative because they say something about you that wants expression. Herminia, I had a 30 year, three decade career in corporate America for the Walt Disney Company and coming on now 27 years with the Franklin Covey Company. Uh, I am retired from the firm. I am an ambassador for the firm and host this podcast. I'm an entrepreneur now. But I found this book gave me a lot of permission. I almost wish, not almost, I emphatically wish I would have read this book 30 years ago because you gave me a lot of permissions that I didn't know I was allowed to take. Maybe you might respond to that word permission. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's the right word. That is why people... Um, feel so relieved when you say write that list of possibilities they're getting permission to be inconsistent to be multiple to not make sense uh to be many different selves and and they're they're just all facets of us they're just all fast you know sometimes you have a creative side that doesn't get a lot of expression because you're doing something else it's still there 
kind of sometimes knocking, hello, it's me, let's be creative now. Um, we have sides of ourselves that are more entrepreneurial. Sometimes they get more expression and there are times when we really want to do that. There are things, times that we don't. And it's very, it, it's great to have permission to be all those things, particularly when you're in this phase that I call the messy middle or in between the old and the new, that's a really important time to have permission to what I call play with your possible selves in order to learn, in order to learn where you might go, in order to not just kind of default to the obvious, uh, which is not always the best solution. You know, that's exactly where I was going next. You say in the book, it's always ugly in the middle. And I thought that was so empowering for us because I think so often we fall into the comparison conundrum where we compare our, our early journey to someone else's finish line or to where they've been. And it's natural as humans to compare ourselves to others. We rarely compare ourselves to where we were and where we are now. Remind everyone how important it is to embrace the fact that it is ugly in the middle and that's actually a good thing for yeah. your own self-discovery and your own learning. Yeah. And, and by the way, when you talk to people who have made a big career change, they forget all the ugly stuff. It's kind of like childbirth. You forget how painful it was and you go at it again. It's not that they're necessarily that they're lying to you. They've forgotten. And I learned this in doing this book because I started hearing these stories. And it just seemed you, these people would tell you something that was so obvious and so clear. Like one day, you know, the hand of God came down from the sky and said, this is who you were meant to be. Um, but when you interview people in process, it's a mess. They're confused, they're anxious, one day they're excited, one day they're really worried, one day they want to be CEO at their company, the next day they want to be an entrepreneur in a completely different industry. It is a bit of a mess. And as you said, it is a good thing because you are changing. Since you're changing, you might as well explore a range of possibilities. It's like if you were going to go buy a house, you're not going to say, I'm only going to look at that one house. You want to look at 10. And sometimes looking at that ugly house <laughs> makes you realize what is it that's really important to you. And so that period is a period, again, to use your word permission, when you have to give yourself permission to diverge, to take your time, to be not as efficient. To It always takes longer than people think. It's less linear. And that is a good thing because the task here is discovery. It's not a task of, you know, making your way. It's not implementation. It's not making your way to a destination that's fixed. It's discovering possibilities that you didn't know existed. And that's always a bit of a zigzaggy kind of path. Uh, your book is a great parenting book. It's also a great leadership book. I think it's a great book for parents in their <coughs> perhaps high school or graduating college children or children of any age, you know, beyond high school to read. I want to share another unconventional strategy. I'm going to read it and have you then expound on it. Resist the temptation to start by making a big decision that will change everything in one fell swoop. Use a strategy of small wins in which incremental gains lead you to more profound changes in the basic assumptions that define your work and life, except the crooked path. Now, there's lots of very valuable career advice out there. In my book, Career on Course, I talk about how to move your career from accidental to intentional, and my book is written more towards people who want a linear path. 
who they, they know they want to be the CEO in 30 years from now and how to methodically get there. Your book, I think, is actually a book that would have been really great for me to read because you take great care, I'm going to use that word permission again, and letting people explore their multidimensional selves, their passions, their joys, what they like, what they don't like, what house they do like, what house, metaphorically, they don't like. Talk about the risk that comes with people that say, you know what, I'm no longer going to be a transplant surgeon. I've always wanted to be a mortgage broker. That maybe is a bit extreme, but I'm guessing there's upside, but there's also downside with these big, massive, sweeping changes. People throw the baby with the bathwater out. Yeah. Luckily, a lot of these big, massive changes, you simply can't make them because nobody's going to hire you since you don't have the skill set or the experience. You're, all, you're so almost, luckily, you're protected from yourself, in, right? You're protected from yourself. There's some built-in breaks. There's some built-in breaks in the system. It's just, it, you know, it, it's, it's very, very hard to do. Um, what I think is more dangerous or more tempting is, um, you know, in the business world, I teach, I teach a lot of managers and executives. They're, they're miserable where they are, and a headhunter shows up with a proposition, and it looks like it could be uh, different enough. And they say, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe at the Hong Kong office, I'll, I'll feel more, you know, I'll have more autonomy or the, the change will do me good. And they are so desperate for a change, they take something that isn't what they want or isn't what's going to fulfill what they're looking for. And so by small wins, and, and, I, and I have to say, we, we don't always have the choice. By small wins, what I mean is, what can you explore on the side? Don't leave your job. Is there an avenue within your organization to get a different skill set or to get on a project that's kind of adjacent, that, um, that allows you to explore a bit of what you're interested in? Is there something that you can do outside? Can you sit on a board? Maybe it's a nonprofit. Maybe you can help a friend who's an entrepreneur who's starting something up. Maybe you take a class, maybe you give a class. There's all kinds of things that will develop new skills, put you into new networks, um, teach you some things about who you are, what you like, what your skills are very actively, and will help shape your sense of what it is that you're really looking for. And so I advise that. Now, there's a different case, and these are people who are out of a job. They've been fired. You know, look at all the layoffs in the tech industry over the past year. What does that mean? That also means do not re resist the temptation to not take the first immediate thing that comes your way. If you're out of a job, that means you've got the luxury of a bit more of a playful search. Um, you can look around a little bit more. Um, take advantage of that. Maybe do a side gig. Maybe maybe do some part-time consulting um, while you check it out as a way of buying yourself time to explore something that's a little different. At first blush, it may seem like a luxury, but your book is very practical because you write. You may be out of a job and perhaps financially you're being compelled to take the first thing because you've got mouths to feed. And you talk about a great strategy, which I love, which is maybe you should take something part-time or as a side hustle just to keep money coming in that you're not overwhelmingly committed to and having to bounce from because it's the wrong thing. I like for an academic who self-admitted, you know, hasn't been hired and fired a lot in corporate, you know, careers, you're very practical about speaking to people's real-life challenges 
and it not being a high-minded book. I highly recommend this. Let's end with this concept, another unconventional strategy. Don't just focus on the work. Find people who are what you want to be and who can provide support for the transition, but don't expect to find them in your same old circles. This is a great topic to kind of send us off into. Find people who are what you want to be. Talk more about that. Yeah. Sometimes our image of what we want to do next is, is kind of fuzzy. It's abstract. You can't quite put your finger on it. But when you see somebody in a role or a line of work that really intrigues you, that's it. You say, that's it. I can see it. This is what it looks like. And you can talk to them. You can learn more about it. That's really important. So many people focus the networking just on where can I get a job? What's a lead? What's a referral? And that's important. But it's also important to find those people that are going to help you define what you really want, that are going to expand your mind about possibilities, that are going to give you ideas maybe that you hadn't thought about, and that are going to inspire you. Since this is hard and it does take time, it's important also to have the inspiration to be able to taste it, to see it, to feel it. And, and, and sometimes when you're not even sure, you, you, you guess. So here's somebody who's doing something interesting. Let me find out how they got into that. And then step by step, you find your way towards the thing you want to investigate more. It's vital. You've written another book called Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader. It's behind you. For those of you who are watching in video in blue, perhaps if you're so in, in, indulged, I might invite you back on to talk about that. Uh, we all think the world doesn't need one more cookbook. It does. Or one more career book. In fact, it does. And one more leadership book. It does. Talk a bit about the concepts in lack. Act like a leader. Think like a leader. Okay. So if working identity is about how to make your way out of the career you're in, act like a leader, think like a leader is about how to step up to a bigger leadership role in your current career. And whether that's a promotion to a higher level or whether it's more impact in the role you're in, um, that's that's what that book is about. And it, it really, it, it starts with the, the fundamental problem of stepping up. And that's this idea that uh, our friend Marshall Goldsmith wrote about so well in his book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. We become successful by doing something really well, and then we repeat it endlessly, even after it is no longer relevant, yet we live in a world of change and disruption. And so what got you here isn't even going to keep you there. You've got to grow and adapt and expand, particularly when you want to reach more senior levels, where it's not just about the expertise, it's also about the strategic thinking and the ability to bring people along. And most of us don't come to those moments with that skill set. So you have to learn it and you have to learn it on the job, which means you act like a leader. You start doing it in order to grow the mindset of a leader because you cannot think like without having had that kind of experience. What you think, your mindset is the product of your past experience. How do you change that expert mindset, which is not suitable to leadership in a bigger capacity, you have to get some new experiences that will change your mind about what's worth doing. And, and you've got three levers to do that. One is you redefine your job 
so that you spend your time doing different things. I can come back to that. You expand your network so that it is broader and exposes you to a broader range of people and ideas. And you, um, what I call playfully, uh, become more playful with your sense of self so that your definition of authentic leadership doesn't condemn you to being as you always have been. It's a more expansive definition of how to be authentic. Herminia Ibarra, you are recognized as one of the top management thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. You are the Charles Handy Professor of Organizational Behavior at the London Business School. What is next for you? What should people who are now following you on LinkedIn and buying your books and listening to interviews, what's next on your purview? I'm working on a new book about career transitions a bit later in our careers. Working identity, although it's meant to be a broad, uh, uh, available to a broader audience, it really does focus on the kind of mid-career transition. Uh, as a society, we're getting older, we're living longer, uh, and we are. We don't want to look forward to a retirement made exclusively of golfing and leisure pursuit. We want to be relevant and do all kinds of things that are exploratory, that are fulfilling. And so it's really about how to think forward to a, a career um, at those later stages uh, of your life. Oh, I radically disagree. I am so looking forward to a retirement of leisurely pursuits because with a guy who's 55, I have three sons with my wife, Stephanie, that are nine, 12, and 13. There's no such thing as retirement given college tuition. You're, you're, in, the dip, you're in the dip of the happiness curve. <laughs> no, I'm Scott, you're in the dip of the... I know I'm wallowing in the basement of the happiness curve right now. Hermina, you have been uh, delightful to invest in our uh, listeners and viewers today. Your book is Working Identity, Unconventional Strategies for Reinventing Your Career. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much, Scott. It's really been fun talking with you. My pleasure. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.